Welcome to The Nine Line, your news and information source for healthcare-related issues impacting Southern Nevada veterans, and a production of the VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System. And now, here's your hosts, John Archiquette and Joshua Gray. Hi, welcome to the Nine Line Podcast, and I'm your host, John Archiquette. Joining me, as usual, is Joshua Gray. Not as always. As usual, always. No, as usual. Eh, it works. E- either way. I mean, you're, I'm, you're, I'm just, your track record for being on the show is better than mine. Yes, so. it is, because I'm not allowed to take vacation. Some people are. I am not one of those That's right. People. You have to earn that. It's just an honor to be nominated. That's so... <laughs> So today's podcast, we're going to change things up a little bit. Uh, we're not going to talk about COVID. Doesn't mean COVID's gone away. It's still a hot topic, and it's still something that we are in the midst of fighting. So you know, all those usual things still apply, and uh, you know, make sure you get your vaccination if you haven't gotten that yet, because that's still something that we are, uh, you know, pushing hard. But but not... life goes on, right? Life exactly. goes on, and you yep. still gotta you still gotta do the the normal everyday business too. Yep, and we have a lot of other great things going on in our healthcare system that uh, we want to talk about, and. You know, since we've been doing this show for almost a year now, um, one area that we haven't covered yet, which is a huge area in our hospital and one of the busiest services that we have is prosthetics. So joining us this week, we have the chief of prosthetics, Deb Bolda, and we have the uh, supervisory prosthetics technician, correct? Lab supervisor. Prosthetics lab supervisor. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Joel Stuns. So thank you both for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having us. So, you know, as I mentioned before, prosthetics is one of the busiest sections of our hospital. You know, during a normal day-to-day, you walk down there and you see a lot of veterans waiting for for care with prosthetics. Um, You know, typically, how many veterans do you guys see a day or a month? What we're averaging right now is a little over 100 veterans per day. Um, And we're open between 6.30 and and 5 o'clock every day. And the average wait times have been running about 14 minutes, um, depending on the day and the time. Um, it could be less, could be a little bit more. Um, but there are three to four people down there seeing over 100 people a day. So what exactly falls under prosthetics? Because when I think of prosthetics, I think artificial artificial limbs, arms, legs, and, and that's about it. But from what I understand, pro- the prosthetics department here at our hospital does a lot more than that. You... Anything that the patient is issued on the outside, there are two different sides to looking at it. Logistics handles everything for the inpatient. Mm-hmm. Prosthetics handles everything for the outpatient. Beds, toilet seats, walkers, chairs, canes, ramps, um, auto-adaptive, clothing allowance, home oxygen, anything that the veteran is, is issued outside the hospital comes out of prosthetics. So, I mean, that, that's, is, that, is that rare for a hospital to do, or is that something that's kind of exclusive to us? It's very um, exclusive to the VA. Um, the community hospitals, they hand you a piece of paper and say, go find a DME company and go purchase this. Um, the Veterans Administration is the only place that does that. Prosthetic is unique in that um, all our money is special purpose money. What that means is... Um, Congress votes and says the VA hospitals, VHA is going to get X amount of dollars. As a totally separate line item, prosthetics gets a budget that is then divided and then comes down. Our money has to go to the veteran to the penny. Um, So it's very specialized. It's it's very um, unique to the VA. 
Um, and it's a patient comes first mentality, which is what it should be. So prosthetics, you know, obviously if you're a veteran who loses a limb in the war and you, you, you know, you have a direct service connection that, you know, obviously you're going to be getting your prosthetics care here. Um, you know, what other conditions will allow somebody to receive prosthetics care from the VA? If you're registered at the VA, you get the items from the VA. There is no restriction. Um, what your service connection is doesn't matter. Um, you just have to be registered within the facility because a consult has to be entered. Um, we can't issue anything without a consult, um, and that's the only restriction. So recently, uh, from what I understand, the prosthetic service has seen uh, some pretty big changes across the country and here locally as well. Uh, what kind of things have you guys been going through? Um, for the first time in 80 years, the federal regulation um, was updated where prosthetics is concerned. Um, there are now 15 distinct categories that are listed on the federal, underneath federal regulation which encompasses everything, because 80 years is a long time, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, 80 years ago, we weren't doing half of what we're doing now. Um, so there are 15 distinct categories. It used to be simply if the veteran has a medical need, it now states that there has to be direct and active connection to a rehabilitation. Okay. Um, what does that mean here? Not a whole lot because we've already kind of already made that transition. Um, but it has to be described and it has to be broken down now. Um, the diagnosis has to connect to the item, has to connect to the justification. Um, and it's all clinically driven um, and patient driven, not prosthetics driven. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. Um, so those are big things. First, that the regulation got updated. Um, and second, that it's changing a little bit, that it's very clinically driven. Um, we also had some of our funding regulations updated. Um, prosthetics does no longer place, pays for any clinical responsibilities, i.e. RTs, KTs, OTs. There were a lot of times that we would absorb that in order to get the item to the veteran. The facilities are going to have to open up some contracts so that they pick up that piece. Um, but from a veteran standpoint, they're not seeing that difference. They're, no. Okay. And, and, and we've been very clear that during the transition period, as these things happen, um, patient care is not going to be affected at all. Great. So administratively, a lot of things have changed. Yep. But from you know, from a veteran walking into prosthetic service, they can still expect to, to get the service that they you know, and probably deserve. And probably more. Um, with the with the added um, attachment now of it being direct and active part of the rehabilitation, some things that in the old regulations and some of them went back to 1960 um, that were no in the old regulations have been cleared. So some things that were a no last week may be a yes today. So I think it's going to be a positive moving forward and not a negative. Well, and it's it's great to you know revamp a lot of those. You know, rules of prosthetics because there's been a lot of changes in prosthetics in the last 80 years and for the number of veterans who require prosthetics. Uh, you know, a lot of those wartime injuries that may have resulted in death in World War II, you know, we've subsequently been able to, you know, provide battlefield trauma care and, and save people's lives. So I think naturally that's led to having a larger number of people with 
amputations and therefore in need of prosthetics. Yeah, it, and, a lot more technology. You know, and we've talked about, you know, just John just kind of mentioned there a little bit, you know, wartime injuries. Uh, but but you also said that you know anybody that has a need can come in. Um, what are some of the, the the injuries typically? And I guess this would almost be for you because you're there, Joel, day to day working with the folks doing the fittings and things like that. What are what are some of the thing other things that you're seeing people that that have a need for prosthetics are coming in for? Is it motorcycle accidents or diabetes or or things like that? Yeah. So I think the pri- so if we're talking amputation or actual prostheses for people, I think the primary cause well not. I don't think, but the primary cause of amputation is just vascular issues. Uh, so whether it be diabetes or you know uh, any, any sort of uh, related injury for that. Second would probably be motor vehicle, uh, primarily uh, motorcycles. Um, but we do more than just prosthetics, right? I mean, we do CPAP machines and, um, oh gosh, so many things, fluorothoses and things for uh, CVAs and strokes and so on and so forth. Um, but the primary cause, you know, when we're talking amputation is going to be lower limb, dysvascular, and then moving on to like uh, motor vehicle accidents. And then upper limbs are a very small portion of what we do. But we've seen, I think I've been here a little over a year, and we've seen about four upper limbs since I've been here. And we do amputee clinic twice a week. So, you know, we're pretty, pretty consistent on seeing patients, but there's just not as many upper limb either. So. Well, I do want to ask more some, some more questions about the uh, the specifics of the the different kind of prostheses that we see. But uh, one more question I have, kind of administratively, uh, during the pandemic, um, you know, a lot of our our face to face care changed quite a bit, and you know, we're seeing the expansion of care and reopening of a lot of our clinics. But you know, how did the pandemic affect the prosthetic service? It didn't. We never closed the door. Um, we stayed open five days a week. We saw the veterans. What did change was we had a period of time where the veterans were not coming in. Um, maybe the doctor put a consult in for them to get a knee brace, but they chose to stay home and be safer versus coming in. Consults are good for a year. Um, what we're seeing now is a big influx of all of those people that didn't come in a year ago are coming in before their consult runs out. Okay. So that's creating an increase right now where people are getting their shots, they're feeling safer to be in the building. Um, and they're coming back. But pandemic-wise for us, we never closed the doors. It, it, it almost seems like a lot of what you do is not really able to be done very much over telehealth necessarily because yeah. you can't you can't go in and cast the end of somebody's you know limb that they've had amputated over telehealth, right? They have to be in front of you, right? Yeah, yeah, it's it's very you know we can we can troubleshoot some issues. We do some telehealth or VVC uh, from time to time with amputees and whatnot, um, but it's very challenging to um, pick out those nuances, you know, uh, of of what's going wrong with uh, said device uh, on a video or or a phone conference, you know. So it, it's we we do do some uh, telehealth visits, but in limited capacity. Yeah. So getting into the little bit more technical side of what goes into fitting somebody. Um, you know, say for a typical lower, lower leg injury, um, what are the steps that go into actually fitting someone for a prosthetic? It's a good question. Um, so I think uh, the first thing that we try to do is just talk to the patient about the steps involved, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because the more we can make them feel comfortable uh, and, and build that trust and, and the expectation of what they're going to get, um, I think the better the outcome. So the first we talk about, you know, the steps 
the whole process. Uh, from there, we pretty much have to wait till they're well healed, stitches or staples out, what have you. And then we get them fit with uh, basically a compression sock for the residual limb. Starts pushing out some of that swelling fluid, starts shaping their leg a little bit. And then we can either, that usually takes about a week or two. And this um, is like, if they're getting their amputation done here and inpatient. Yeah, it's the same. It's the same inside VA, outside VA. You know, you want to educate the patient. You want to wait till it well healed before you you actually start you know prosthetic intervention. But the start of prosthetic intervention and it takes about once they're healed, it, it takes anywhere from two to six weeks to get a prosthesis, just depending upon avail you know clinician availability, uh, how often the patient can come back, and there's a series of steps. Generally involves a, you know a time a period of time in a shrinker, uh, a casting or a scan of the residual limb, a prototype phase. And then um, you know the defend, the delivery phase, and along those that that timeline, you're also educating them about you know how to use a prosthesis, the good, the pros, the cons, the risks, the benefits, the the do's, the don'ts, the weight gain, the weight loss. Um, so there's a lot that goes into it, but but generally from the time you fit the shrinker to a prosthesis delivery, anywhere from two to six weeks, and then we'll routinely see them again for follow up. You know, because prosthesis isn't like a it's not like a baseball bat. You know, here you go, you just use it, and it never changes. <laughs> you know, your leg changes, you gain weight, you lose weight. So, so there's a lot of a lot of education. That's like probably the primary first stop when it comes to to, to prosthetic uh, care is, is is education. And there's a lot of changes that happen that first year. They may go through goodness, half a dozen limbs, because their leg is going to change, how it shapes, how it fits, hot spots, yeah. um, bone rubs, all. So that first year, there can be a, a, a huge amount of different limbs that are tried and done. Once they get stable, it becomes a yearly process unless something happens, though, right? Pretty much. Uh, so in the first year, yeah, you nailed it. Uh, you can have a couple of different sockets. So the part that your leg actually goes into is called the socket. That's got to be a perfect fit. If it's not perfect, uh, and I mean total contact perfect, uh, considering volume. If it's not perfect, uh, your leg's not going to fit. Your leg could, uh, you know, just not not fit well without going into all the detail. So in the first year, you'll get a couple socket replacements perhaps. And then uh, periodically, maybe every year or two after that, or even up to, you know, for a really seasoned amputee, when I say seasoned, I mean long time amputee. If you've been an amputee for 10 years uh, or 15 years, your leg may not change as frequently as somebody who just recently underwent an amputation. So you might have a, a socket, if you will, that, that lasts two to seven years. It just, um, you know, it depends on how good you are at managing. Um, well, it depends on how well the socket was built in the first place and how how good you are at managing your volume and, and expectations and stuff like that. When you're when you're talking about like a lower limb prosthesis, um, is it just a kind of a, a basic service that we provide, just like a basic foot so you can walk? Because I mean, I've seen now that there's you know there's the the fitness legs with like the running blades and stuff like that. Is, is that part of what we do here also, or do you, do you have to go and get that somewhere else? No, no, we we we're probably one of the, in my opinion, uh, one of the most comprehensive like prosthetic intervention places you can get uh, as long as you show uh, you know that this device this running prosthesis this swimming prosthesis this this whatever kind of prosthesis hiking we have hiking, climbing we have yeah there's a swimming one yeah yeah like yes. like like you get a like a uh, yep. a, a, a flipper yep, yep it's a flipper um, <laughs> that's awesome really it'd be a good advantage <laughs> right yeah right the rule here if you are capable of doing it and you want to do it or try it I'm going to authorize the purchase to make it happen. If it's something that will keep, anything that will keep the amputee active and healthy and with their family and moving, we're going to provide it. 
Now, we're not going to provide it if they're going to sit in the wheelchair and not necessarily um, move and walk. But any veteran that wants to try a new sport and be active, um, and some of it gets pretty interesting. They ski. Yeah, um, we got snowboarders and skiers. Yep. Yeah, actually, I, I do go to help out at uh, the winter and summer sports clinics and the, the wheelchair games every year. And um, I was trying to keep up with a former pro skier who was a single leg amputee. And I, I consider myself a pretty good skier. Um, I was having a hard time keeping up with him. And he yeah, just, um, you know, one, one leg and one ski and he was just bombing the hill. We, we have an amputee here that likes to go on African safaris. Oh, wow. Which means they're out in the middle of nowhere. So it isn't just necessarily doing one leg. He gets a leg and a backup. Um, but more of a manual backup because if he's out in the middle of nowhere in Africa, he's not going to have power necessarily to power something up to make something happen. Sure. Um, and the terrain is rougher. Um, but he is adamant every spring he goes to Africa to watch the lions. I'll tell you what, if I, saw, if I saw an amputee walking around in a big game safari hunt in Africa, I would probably stay away. I'm like, that dude's probably got a story behind that. And, and I'd be willing to bet that if they have any trouble, they do have to use telehealth, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> not um, really, yeah. And, and most of them at that level are very good um, with some tools and a screwdriver on maintaining and managing their own limbs in a pinch. Yeah, so so um, for the for the, for those select few, yeah, we try to just because there's a lot that goes into the alignment and stuff. But for those select few, we'll teach them a little bit about it, especially those remote remote guys and gals who, who like to get out there and, and get after it. Okay, we're gonna take a quick break, and we'll be back with the folks from the prosthetic service here at the VA. You're listening to the Nine Line, a production of the VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System. We'll be back with more right after this. COVID-19 has changed how we live and how we feel. We show up differently, worship differently, and have found new ways to express our love and support to family and friends. But now there are vaccines, and they are the first step that lets us get back into the things we miss most. Like spreading the word without spreading concern, girls tripping instead of solo sipping, brunching instead of late night munching, and talking smack with a side of mac and cheese. It's okay to have questions about COVID-19 vaccines. Should I get it? Should I wait? Is it safe? Can I trust it? What about pre-existing conditions? Now get the facts. Visit GetVaccineAnswers.org so you can make an informed decision when COVID-19 vaccines are available to you. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Question, what will you find on all over-the-counter or OTC medicine packages to help you choose the right drug and use it safely? The answer, the drug facts label. This label lists the medicine's active ingredients and purpose, how much to take, and warnings you should know before using it. Remember, even OTC medicines you buy without a prescription can cause side effects you don't want. So follow the information listed on the drug facts label. For more information, visit fda.gov slash drug facts label. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Welcome back to the Nine Line, Southern Nevada's source for veteran-related healthcare news and information. Here's your hosts, John Archiquette and Joshua Gray.
Welcome back to the Nine Line Podcast. We are joined today by the prosthetics team. We have Joel Stuns and Chief of Prosthetics, Deb Bolda. We're talking about uh, prosthetic service and kind of what we've seen lately with uh, changes in technology. Um, you know, you hear things about 3D printing and, you know, a lot of just interesting new innovations going on in the world of prosthetics. What things have you seen develop since you've been working here, Joel? Well, that's a good question. There's, um, there's, I would say, probably three main types of, of, of prosthetic fabrication um, about. So you can, there's, the traditional way they teach everybody in school is to, is to hand cast. You know, I won't say it's archaic, but it's the standard, it's the go-to, you know, it's repeatable. Hand casting somebody. You I was going to say, you're too young for peg legs. So. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, so, so I guess even further back, you know, they used to whittle, whittle out of the, the yeah. uh, some wood out of it. Yeah, but um, there's casting, there's scanning. You can 3D scan a residual limb and have have something uh, uh, carved or printed. There's uh, uh, well, I guess those are the two primary ways. But if you're scan, if you're going to scan someone's residual limb, whether it be arm or, or leg or what have you, um, there's a couple ways to produce a, a prototype socket from that. You can carve a socket from that on, on a carver, or you could uh, 3D print um, you could 3D print a, a socket. Uh, 3D printing is you know pretty. It's one of the newest uh, technologies and, and prosthetics there's not very there's very 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 few people who are mainstream i don't even know if there is anybody mainstreaming it uh, but there's there's a few vas have some 3d printers we don't um, and then uh, there's one guy on the outside who, who does quite a bit he's done some some ispo or some testing of the sockets and stuff but the the technology and the variability in producing these 3d printed things is is so new and so subjective and so so variable that it's a little bit i think too risky for the mainstream to to start doing that yet. And, and it takes a while. Um, it's interesting though. It, it's, you know, it's something worth talking about and something maybe worth, you know, pursuing because, um, you know, you can do a lot of things with 3d printing. You can, you can alter this or change that or change this texture of the surface or what have you. So, um, as far as some other technologies that are happening, uh, there's, um, with a lot of our myoelectric processes for hands and stuff like that, they work off muscle signals. So, you know, if you flex your wrist or extend your wrist, that could uh, close a hand or open a prosthetic hand. There are some systems where they're they're dabbling, and I don't know a whole lot about this piece of it, but they're dabbling neural integration. And then the other piece that is a little bit more mainstream that can be done by us currently is, uh, it's like pattern recognition. So they install a bunch of sensors all over and they say, you know, okay, Mr. Smith, think flex your hand. And these sensors pick up that fu- that you know that muscle pattern signal, and it flexes your hand instead of, uh, or, or Mr. Smith, you know, please uh, think about uh, pointing your your index finger to your thumb, and so that pattern recognition could 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 potentially you know with your microprocessor hand point your index finger to your thumb, whereas the traditional myelectric way is just you know. Uh, flex and extend would be a, a close and open where now we're getting into the we'll think about what you're doing and we'll try to pick up the muscle signals to, to coincide with that microprocessor device so that's that's it's pretty cool so that's amazing actually <laughs> like bionic arms who who thought I mean, yeah. so we're, we're almost at luke skywalker hand <laughs> oh, I, 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 I don't know there's you know there there's a there's a bit a, a bit of a disconnect a little bit with the microprocessor stuff as you know a lot of people the advertising for it is actually you know it's real great and it's the advertising is well done but you know you can't see through a um, a prosthetic hand right mm-hmm. if you hold your hand out in front of your face and you try to look at your phone on the other side of your hand, you can't see it. And that, that still applies. So while uh, some of the older technology, like you know, hooks, 
mm-hmm. um, are still actually widely used because it's so small and so precise and so much pre- precision. You can see what you're doing. You can pick a quarter up off the table, you know, when you have this microprocessor hand. And we're just talking hands, just just to talk hands, though, right? You can't see through it. You can't see the quarter. You can't feel how much. You can't feel how. So, so we're coming. We're coming on, you know, on, on getting better. But uh, there's still still a lot of room for improvement. Well, I would imagine that just you know, based on my cursory knowledge of prosthetics, there would be a huge difference in you know what you would need for doing an upper arm prosthetic, like a you know, hand, compared to what you would need for a foot, because you really have one function for your foot and that's just basically to keep your balance and, you know, help you to maintain your gait, but right? you would be surprised the answer to that is no. Really? You'd be amazed at what your foot or your ankle, the knee, um, and the electronics um, that go into those things. Yeah, there's some pretty, pretty, um, uh, you know, high dollar doesn't equate to better, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there's some pretty advanced technological lower limb stuff too. Um, you know, knees that self-extend, that will pick you up out of a chair, uh, feet that will plantar flex or, or push you up, push you up, you know. Um, but again, just because, you know, it doesn't make it better or worse. It's just their, their options. And you mentioned kind of you threw the acronyms out there, the the above knee or A, was it ABK or BK? Mm-hmm. That, the above the knee and the below the knee. Yeah. Um, so how big of a difference is there if you do have to replace that knee? Um, so I... I'm thinking of that two ways. Are we talking like um, oxygen consumption and energy expended by the patient and, and the amount of work it takes to walk with an above knee amputation versus a below knee? Or are we talking um, it's like to actually replace the mechanical component? Like how how different? See, those, those are factors I didn't even I didn't even contemplate. I, I guess I just thought of the mechanical aspect of it. But I mean, uh, the the first thing you were talking about, yeah, I'm sure that's probably something that needs to be factored in there as well. Yeah, I, I, uh, there's there's been several studies on the oxygen consumption it takes to walk with a uh, with no knee or or a transfemoral or an above knee amputation versus a below knee or a transtibial amputation, and I I, I, I don't know the actual statistic or percentage, but it's well over a hundred percent for an above knee amputation uh, or amputee to walk as opposed to having two legs, hundred uh, percent oxygen consumption for the same amount of distance walked. Um, so it's it's de- the higher you go, the harder it is for the patient. Um, it's it, you know for us walking is walking, but for them walking is like running a marathon or sprinting, you know, because it's just so hard. Uh, below knees amputees or transtibial amputees usually get by pretty well because uh, they're only missing. I say only, but they're, <laughs> <laughs> they're missing their foot, um, but they still have control of their knee, you know. So so that that's beneficial to them. When it comes to replacing pieces uh, of the of the prosthesis, I, what I often actually talk about is um, because there's so much marketing involved around, uh, you know, all, all this stuff, I call these pieces, uh, when, I, when I'm speaking with patients, I just refer to them as Lego pieces. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Smith, you know, you have to do the work. You are the driving force behind this. You and I are going to be the ones to make or break this. All this knee and the foot and all that stuff, they're nice, but they're like, you know, they're just Lego pieces. Like we're, we're going to have to be the ones who put in the work. Um, so they're not hard to replace because, you know, they're just they're just pieces you can put together. You know, from an outside perspective, it's easy to look at your job and say, like, okay, this person's doing simply just the the physiological mechanics of replacing a, a you know a knee or a foot or something like that. But how much of what you do is like a coach where you have to help that person push through barriers? Oh yeah, no, thanks for bringing that up. So I actually work with a team of people who 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 uh, address this. We have a PMR doctor and we have a kinesiotherapist, myself. 
And we're in clinic, you know, two days a week seeing folks. And we all kind of are, are act as a coach, you know. We all have different roles. Our kinesiotherapist, Jessica Blackwell, does a lot of uh, a lot of gait training with them. So, you know, I'll get them set up for their prosthesis. Dr. Aguila will be uh, the one, you know, mitigating maybe their um, their home home accessibility or, or auto-adaptive or something like that. But I think we act as a large part as a coach, you know, because they don't know. They've never been here. They don't know what to expect. Can I do this? Can I do that? And, and we're their first stop shop to, uh, to kind of to coach them up on that. And when it comes to making all of these things, we manufacture all of these in-house, most of these uh, prosthetic you know, limbs that people are using, correct? Some we do. Uh, we see, uh, like I said, so we see about 300, uh, 300 uh, prosthetic prescriptions a year. Some we do in-house, some we have local vendors that we contract with to do them. Maybe the patient lives closer to them or has you know transportation concerns. Um, so we also work with our local vendors and rely on them to to make prostheses. And then you know we follow up with the patients, get them back in here for therapy or something like that. But so we do some in house. Uh, hopefully we're trying. We we definitely want to do more. Um, we just uh, we're just we're just chipping away at it and we're we're we're, we're coming up. So now, is, is and that, a, is... a bond forms. I I think that that's real important to note. Um, when you're an amputee, most amputees connect with a CPO, a certified um, prosthetist, and that over years you learn their leg, they learn to be comfortable with you. The veteran gets to choose where it goes, mm. wherever they're comfortable to get what they need. Um, some veterans will follow that provider from vendor to vendor. Um because that bond gets formed um, and the knowledge of what happens. Um, we're trying to do more in-house, um, but they do, it, it starts, everything is veteran-driven. Well, it seems like, you know, with, especially with the VA, how you mentioned, you know, the kinesiotherapist, uh, Jessica Blackwell, you know, she works a lot with you guys with them, but the, the veterans kind of find bonds with other amputees. I know that she had a group before the pandemic that was, working together on fitness stuff called the ass kickers. Yeah. And uh, I know there was like their own little, their, their own self moniker that they, uh, they gave, gave themselves. But um, you know, they're a very unique group of veterans who all kind of supported one another through VA, you know, physical training. Yeah. So it's, that's a, a very, uh, a cool aspect like you said about the bond that kind of forms between not only veteran to veteran, but veteran to provider here. And we try to connect um, an older amputee with a brand new one a lot of times because there are questions that the new amputee may not be comfortable asking even their team of providers that to go have coffee or to go have a beer there might be a more open conversation. Sure. Um, it's also somebody to keep you honest. I mean our objective when they become an amputee is to get them up as fast as we possibly can for their health, for their mental health, um, having a buddy that keeps you honest like that, keeps you honest about not wearing your limb too long to begin with, um, so you don't get a sore, so you don't get a hot spot. That goes a long way um, on both sides, the, the buddy that's helping and the buddy that's being helped. It gives everybody a purpose. Um, you know, going into talking about the sports and stuff and activities that, that veterans do, um, you know, do you guys work a lot with uh, the recreational therapists to, to kind of help to, to get them other outlets outside the VA? You, 
we we do in in the aspect of what they're looking for or sport they're looking to do. Okay. Um, spinal cord and the amputees um, before COVID had had a big riding group with the bikes. Um, to be part of the group, prosthetics will buy you the bike. Um, those bikes aren't cheap. Either. Those bikes are not <laughs> cheap, but again. It's getting the veteran out. It's making them, they're allowing them to be part of a group. Mm-hmm. Um, anything that we can do to help keep them active and interacting with other people um, plays a big part in both the physical and the mental health of, of the whole patient. So just, you know, speaking briefly about the the cost of some of the prosthetics, you know, we we're, we go out of a way to, to really make sure that veterans are taken care of and get the, the prosthetics that they, they would use and that they need. Um, but how much might one of these prosthetics cost? Um, so the typical, I would say typical average, average uh, below knee amputee uh, prosthesis, I would say is about an average of seventy-five dollars to $8,000, $7,500, $8,000. For an above knee amputee, uh, we can, it's so broad based on the, just because there's more componentry involved. The average cost I would say is, is around eighteen dollars to $20,000. But they can go as high as hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Wow. So you know, a veteran who's coming to the VA to get service, you know, even if they had good insurance outside, and you know, we're paying a twenty percent copay. I mean, you're still saving yourself thousands of dollars by by coming to the VA. And, and really, what we're spending, you know, what they get in getting their their life back to as close to normal as possible, it's totally worth that investment for us to be able to make that. All right. Well, thank you both very much for joining us today. Um, really appreciate that. This has been very educational for me because I, <laughs> I, I'll be honest, I, I didn't know about like half of the things that that went on in prosthetics, other than the fact that you guys are probably the hardest working service that we have here at the VA. The one thing that I've learned with uh, you know sending the emails back and forth about getting ready for the show, and I, I've worked with Joel on a couple of uh, products. The word prosthetic is amazingly hard to type. <laughs> that's, I'm like, I'm like, no, that's it. It doesn't, it sounds different. It's not the same. So, yeah. I appreciate you guys just for being able to write that all the time. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much. And thank you folks for listening. We will see you in two weeks. You've been listening to The Nine Line, a production of the VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System. For more information about what the VA is doing for Nevada's veterans, check out our official webpage at www.lasvegas.va.gov or follow us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Las Vegas VA. Thanks for listening.